Welcome to Field Notes. Uh, we're joined today by Allison John Jack. Am I saying your name right, Allison? Before yes, it I is John Jack. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> we're joined today by Allison John Jack, who is a Cranberry Outreach Specialist with UW Extension in the state of Wisconsin. And we're going to be talking about cranberry production in Wisconsin. So Allison, welcome. Maybe if you just want to start by sharing, uh, introducing yourself and sharing a little bit of an overview about what your experience working with cranberry growers has been in Wisconsin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I So I had originally grown up on a cranberry marsh in northern Wisconsin, um, went to school for ag engineering, and my master's also in, uh, you know, ag engineering, specifically kind of soil, soil physics, soil chemistry. Um, worked with row crop growers for about seven years, and then the University of Wisconsin invented this cranberry outreach specialist position, and I was like, I want to go back and work with my favorite crop in my favorite state, um, and came back in 2020. So in those three years, uh, it's been um, really fantastic to kind of re-anchor myself in um Cranberries are such a unique crop agronomically. They grow in really acidic soils and the the nutrient expectations are uh, pretty backwards of what people expect if they're used to row crops. Um, and getting re-involved in the cranberry community and helping growers uh, you know, connect with Madison, figure out what is the best research for researchers to, to focus on that's gonna be directly applicable to growers. Um, it's, been really, it's been really fantastic. Yeah. Are there any uh, specific things that you enjoy working about with cranberry growers, maybe more than if you've worked with other kinds of producers or farms before, or just kind of the heritage of it for you? Um, I'll say, actually, so one of the things that's really cool about cranberries, again, because it's such a, a niche crop and it's such an interesting, you know, different than everything else space. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but the growers no one is out there inventing uh, tools for cranberry growers. So if a cranberry grower is, you know, working on such and such a mechanical issue, um, they'll solve it themselves and then like talk to their neighbors and be like, oh, check out how I solved this problem and wind up, um, you know, developing a machining company on the side that's going to make these new, um, these new berry pumps or these new like boom attachments. And I really love I mean, pretty much all farmers have the kind of tinker in your garage until you've figured something out spirit. But cranberry growers really exemplify that, um, you know, I see how this could be better. I'm going to I'm going to spend a couple of spare uh, spare weekends figuring out and actually making it better. Um, and so the, the drive to always um, always make make things more efficient is, is really fun to be around. So we just, unless I'm mistaken, we just kind of finished up cranberry harvest. Am I correct? Yes, there've been a few people still doing um, some kind of post-harvest cleanup, but by and large, uh, the crop is in and people are uh, remembering which way is up and uh, and drying themselves out. All right. And just in time for Thanksgiving, hence why we're talking about cranberries. Um, yes. And so, you know, we're dealing with the perennial crop here, which is not typically, unless you're doing alfalfa, what we see much of in Wisconsin. It's not our corn, soybean, and wheat rotation. So what does that cranberry management look like through the rest of the season? And, you know, kind of talk about a little bit 
about some of the differences that we see with that with this crop than others um you know people may think that it grows in cranberry bogs that are always flooded but uh, i know that not to be the case and i don't even know that much about cranberries so you should talk on it yeah so cranberries tend to grow naturally and we tend to grow cranberries in wisconsin in the places where they were naturally growing before uh before agriculture started to happen right so people the first cranberry marshes were just cranberry marshes and all you would do to have a cranberry marsh was hire guys to come help pick them um in the in the fall with you and then go back to chicago afterwards um eventually they realized hey we can do better if someone's here all year and protecting from frost so there is so much going on um so even though harvest is over we're still watching temperatures closely. Um, This year, it's been unseasonably warm after harvest, but usually as temperatures start to drop, um, we watch the vines kind of progress into dormancy so that um, if we get a a sharp drop or a really uh, deep cold snap that would be more than the vines were ready for, we're able to frost protect. Um, and that can be either sprinkler irrigation or a flood, depending on if you've put your sprinkler irrigation back in after the harvest process, um, which I guess I should start with. Um, growing a cranberry is an 18 month process. So in June, uh, you have blossom. And then in July, the fruit is setting. In July and August, both this year's, so 2023's fruit was setting and growing and 2024's bud is being developed. So during, you know, all of August, all of September, you've got two years of crop alive and on the line that you're protecting. Um, When you harvest 2023's crop, you still have 2024's you know, herb blossoms, the kind of the, the fruiting primordia, like what's going to become the blossom, what's going to become the fruit is already in that bud tip. And so if a bug chews that off or if it gets too cold and that freezes, you've lost next year's crop potential. Um, so over the course of the year, um, and we'll talk about nutrients in more depth, I think shortly here, but in the summer, you are fertilizing to fill the current year crop without negatively impacting next year's crop. Um, So there's a lot of um, very fine needle threading that goes on in choosing the right uh, fertilizer, you know, rates and timing. Um, Then during harvest and kind of as always, we we do a minimum amount of walking in the beds, minimum amount of travel in the beds, um, no kicking things off in the beds. Um, You are going to frost protect into the fall. Um, In the winter, at some point, we'll get a good cold snap. And when we have a really good deep cold snap that's expected to last for a couple of days, growers will raise a flood, um, set hopefully 12 to 18 inches of ice, and then drain the water out from underneath. Uh, And then that ice blanket is going to be kind of an igloo and kind of protect the vines from extra deep, extra deep cold snaps for the rest of the winter. Whoa. Um, yeah. Feel free to cut me off and ask questions. I did not I know definitely... that. Oh, yeah. That's really cool. So it's just like a hollow underneath this ice. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, and the, it's the ice, ice and air. Down. The ice kind of slumps down after a bit, but yeah, it's ice and air. Um, and 
I feel free to cut this out of the podcast if it's not interesting. But, you know, when we were learning to drive, um, we had a good ice um, on a on a big bed and no snow yet. And so dad took like the old station wagon and said, OK, practice losing control and regaining control <laughs> here. Where there's sights around and nothing can go wrong. Um, it's 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 yeah, it's uh, wonderful for driving practice for what a for your... <laughs> what a Wisconsin story there. You're going to learn <laughs> to drive your car out on the frozen cranberry box yep yep amazing okay sorry continue i i I, yeah you're good (laughs) um that and you know just this way it's safe um so then when there is that thick um ice protecting them from from cold it also there and there's a lot that goes on in winter protection too um in addition to even though the cranberries are dormant um, their, their roots still need oxygen. Um, if you have a wet pocket that didn't, um, that didn't drain well, you can wind up, um, basically suffocating your plants and having their leaves drop off. So there's various kinds of winter damage to watch out for. Um, but under a normal case where you're, where you're, uh, you've got your, you've got your ice blanket all set, um, roughly every fifth year, uh, cranberry growers will uh, do an operation called sanding, which is spreading about a quarter to and a half an inch of sand out on the ice. So this is the only time you can drive safely on the beds is when there's ice on them. So you can take a dump truck and and put out um, a finely screened uh, quarter inch to half inch layer of sand in the spring that will, you know, the ice will melt away. The sand will settle down through the canopy um, but it'll trap a couple of vines on the way. The vines get a, a hormonal signal if they have sand on top of them that they should send out fresh runners. So kind of in the same way strawberry plants send out runners, cranberry vines, if they get this hormonal signal, will will send out runners, put down fresh roots from those runners. And that's kind of the way that even if you have plants that were originally planted in 1939, you still have um, good fruit producing tissue it's kind of the cranberry grower's equivalent of pruning um, and always having fresh tissue. So you still get um, good, you know, vigorous fruit production on the new tissue. Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask was, I, I mean, I used to work with grape growers. And so uh, I'm very aware of winter pruning as the way that, you know, it's the same. It's a vine. So you have next year's growth ready to go that growing season, that previous growing season. And then you're pruning it back to be able to give, you know, the specific buds the ability to then be like, okay, we have all of the energy that was going to go to this whole vine into these two buds. So we're going to produce quality and the right quantity of grapes. Mm -hmm. And so rather than pruning, which seems a laborious process over, you know, a (laughs) hundred acres or whatever it is of cranberries, you're incentivizing this kind of spreading um, as a way of having new fruit wood. Exactly. And that you're effectively like, over time kind of burying the oldest woodiest tissue and you'll have we have these our our soils are like layers of organic matter sand organic matter sand that are the prior year's leaves you know compress and, and so we roughly sand each bed every four years so most growers have things on a quarter of the marsh get sanded each year so that they have a balanced workload um and then you'll so you'll have your five you know four years worth of um of leaf and and stem and then that layer of sand kind of compacts things down and you you get this nice um, 
nice striations and that kind of helps with nutrient availability and kind of the whole the whole ball game so that's kind of foundational to to how we grow cranberries here very cool what do things look like once that starts thawing out in the spring besides uh the tillers kind of going out and setting roots is that when they kind of start budding out and start flowering or is there other things happening first yeah so coming out of dormancy and i think we would definitely call them runners rather than tillers and there's a bunch of fun like terms of art that are very like cranberry specific and you'll yeah, hear what a field around. crop way to think of things michael <laughs> tillers it's not rye i gotta translate it into something i do know there's something yes. called uprights uprights right that is cranberries that is, see yes. i know something oh, although actually there are two things called uprights and cranberries one are the vines that so runners are the the vines that are spreading out um stolons would be the the technical scientific term um but runners is the colloquial term and everyone understands that and then uprights are the ones that don't grow sideways they grow straight up um roughly finger length to maybe maximum like six inches and that's where you'll have your um your flowers uh, developing into fruit there's also what we call the uprights in the irrigation systems and that is the uh roughly foot tall riser that lets our irrigation um, have a good reach so that we're using kind of the you know balancing um, water use efficiency so that's the uh the part of your irrigation system you have to have out of the way for harvest so uh, two points for one answer um yeah so when uh when the ice starts to thaw and we get to start um, scrambling, basically. The spring is probably the most stressful time for a cranberry grower. Um, as soon as the ice begins to thaw, you will start um, lining up your irrigation system. There's, there's you know, mainline pipe that, that might have to be taken up for the winter to avoid bursting and freezing. Um, that has to go out. Um, some growers have buried underground pipe in the bed that's permanently there, and they just have to screw in the uprights into position. Um, other growers have a uh, pipe that gets uh, set and replaced um, on top of the beds each year. And so those people will be scattering pipe on top of the ice um, as it melts so that as soon as it melts, um, you can connect everything, make sure there's no uh, gaskets that have suffered over the winter, make sure you've got everything, uh, everything tight and, and waterproof, um, and then you will be able to frost protect. Um, Immediately after, you know, as soon as you can see vines, you are putting out uh, temperature sensors in a maybe usually one per 10 or one per 20 acres. Um, you try to set them in the places that you know are going to be the coldest, whether that is, uh, you know, every every place has a microclimate. So you kind of know oh, over in that swale over there, um, it'll be it'll be extra cold. Um, and so you are watching you you set an alarm in your bedroom and when you're first coming out of dormancy the cranberries are able to tolerate um you know quite cold temperatures like negative negative 15 without damage as they transition from tight bud to cabbage head suddenly what used to be able to tolerate negative 15 is starting to push water back up into the bud tissue and now it's vulnerable again so suddenly um, you can go from handling negative 15 to only handling zero to handling only 12 to suddenly you can only handle um 30 you know 32 and then there's 
uh, the very delicate phases like uh, like roughneck and hook where say, okay, I don't even want this to get below 38. Um, and so we adjust the, the, t- the, the temperature sensors to send alarms and wake us up and uh, frost protect basically on any cold, clear night. Um, so that's uh, a, a cranberry grower will get very little sleep um, for those first few weeks after, after ice out. Spring mostly focuses on frost protection. There are a couple of insects that are very early to show up that we will sweep for and treat if they become a problem. Um, but those tend to not typically be our more severe pests. So it's just kind of a monitor situation. Um, and then the cranberry plants, when they're coming out of dormancy, are not taking up really any energy yet. They're using the carbohydrate stores that they already had. So there's no fertilizer that goes done in that early phase. You mentioned pests. Do you ever have any weed issues with cranberries or does their growth habit kind of knock them out pretty well? Or what's that like? There, there are certainly weed issues. Um, and especially in a perennial crop, there's no there's no go back and do overs, right? Um, if you if you get weeds established, they're not going to go away. You're going to have to keep fighting them for you know years to come. So our most pernicious weeds are woody perennials, the same as cranberries. Um, we have some pretty good tools for a lot of uh, broadleafs, and we have some pretty good tools for you know barnyard grasses. Um, but sedges can be difficult to uh, difficult to target without targeting the cranberries and then things that are close relatives of the cranberry like brown bush leatherleaf um maples are a uh a, a thorn in everyone's side forever and then dewberries which are these kind of low yielding sprawling blackberry relative um that there's just nothing there's just nothing that kills them and uh they they make us real sad Thanks for that overview of kind of what things look like. So this is a really unique crop and there's lots of management going into it. And I think that just kind of helps us appreciate that a little bit. You mentioned too, a little bit about uh, soil fertility management in cranberries. And so I wanted to open up that conversation a little bit more and see, you know, are there any unique management considerations for soil fertility in cranberries or how is it usually applied and you know, yes. we talk about losses in like row crop systems and trying to mitigate those. Are there losses that happen in cranberry systems too? But Yeah. So I'm going to start actually with kind of like, so humidity and then um, you blossom. And then after you blossom um, is when people start thinking about fertility, because that is when the plant is starting to shift from using its internal storage to now, um, taking external storage, it, taking external resources uh, and, and putting those into the fruit and to, into next year's tissue. So when we start to see fruit from, from the dike, and we kind of go by phenological stage mostly, um, this is when it's time to start making nutrient applications. Um, we tend to do uh, blends, um, a triple 11, like NPK 11, 11, 11 is really common. Um, you also will see some maybe 14, 11, 11. I guess the, the biggest thing to realize about cranberries contrasted with row crops is if you put down too much fertilizer, um, unfortunately, the plant is going to take it up. I mean, I guess fortunately from a, from a downstream water perspective, the plant is going to take it up. But unfortunately, from a growing a crop perspective, the plant is going to take it up because if it gets more than it wants, 
it is going to turn that nutrition into runners and vegetative tissue instead of into fruiting tissue. So if we over-fertilize, um, we get great green luscious vines with no berries on them. People start, started to realize this as soon as we started commercially cultivating cranberries, like, hey, I'll add some fertilizer. Oh, no, that didn't do what I wanted at all. Um, so in order to get the right amount of fertilizer, um, there's a, we'll do tissue and soil tests to kind of confirm what our soil reserves are. Um, if we're seeing high soil test, um, uh, if, if we're seeing low tissue P, um, for example, but there's high soil P, that lets us know we have an uptake issue rather than an availability issue. And so adding more granular P is not going to solve the problem. We have to look at actually getting what's already there into the plant instead. Um, so we do baseline uh, tissue and soil tests annually, um, trying to keep, uh, you know, keep most of our tissue levels in, in an optimal range. Um, when we come around to, uh, to application season, you'll have a general plan based on your expected yield of a given bed. And that usually that varies by variety. Varieties also vary in how early or late they are. So an early season variety, sometimes you'll do your first, uh, nutrient application a week before you do your first nutrient application in the later variety. So we are watching for um, you know, the berries to set and become almost pea size before we'll start so that those nutrients are taken up and put directly into the fruit. Um, in addition to that, we're doing really small doses. So the plant is filling the fruit slowly. Um, similarly, we're going we're gonna to go out and put a dose out um, when we first see the, the berries swelling to pea size. And then we'll wait for roughly five days go out and look at upright growth. And I know this sounds like not the most uh, advanced technology in the world, but go out and uh, a farmer's understanding of how has my upright pushed? Um, what shade of green is it? And I've got growers that use like four different um, polarized sunglasses to check like, is it this green or this green or this green and, and makes comparisons. Um, you're looking for um, response to the especially the nitrogen, um, but not too much response. And so most people will put on um, roughly once a week for four weeks, a very small dose that's on the order of 10 pounds per acre. Um, it, if it's triple 11, it's all just the same, but we tend to say so many pounds of nitrogen. And of course the P and K are, are at those same levels. Um, Nitrogen is the one that that kicks off overgrowth. And so that's what we're kind of physically monitoring for. Um, but we'll make um, four to six applications over the course of a year. Um, when you see overgrowth, you stop um, and you won't put on any more that year. Is the fertility going on through like fertigation through the irrigation system or is it applied separately? Right. So it's a granular application system, um, kind of hearkening back to the uh, cranberry growers as engineers that I was kind of kicked us off with. They developed a boom spreader. And so basically think of, you know, a cart that's going to drive on the dike. So cranberries are grown in beds. They're maybe two to three acres on average with dikes 
in between each bed. And the dike A lets you raise up water for harvest, but B lets you drive on something because we can't drive on beds. We are super paranoid about soil compaction. We don't like to uh, cause any negative impact on our perennial vines out there. So we stay out of the beds whenever we can. So we travel along the dike with this big long arm that reaches out over half the bed. And this boom is, it's cool, it's dual use. Most of them have both a wet kit with sprayer drops as well as a really big fan that blows granular fertilizer out and then little shields that deflect the fertilizer straight down into the crop. Um, and so we're making these applications by granular fertilizer, you know, granular, granular by boom. Um, that lets us be super precise with placement. We don't have to have overlaps. Um, most people um, with the advent of the boom, if you rebuild a bed, you'll build it to be exactly the size of your boom so that you don't have to um, don't have to wonder or worry about overlap. For people who have uh, different sized beds, um, you there's this kind of nice xylophone mechanism where you can shut off individual uh, openings. So you you set your boom to match your bed length or your bed width, I'm sorry. Um, so that it, it gets put kind of right exactly in the right place. Um, and that also makes it possible to do these weekly applications. Um, one of the convenient things about a cranberry marsh, if you're if you're 50 acres, if you're 100 acres, it is possible to you know make a lap of the marsh um, and and get fertilizer applied to everything in in a day or two, um, and that then you get um, five days to work on your work on your other issues, and then come right back and be ready to do your next lap of of fertility. Five days to decide which um, sunglass, polarized sunglasses that you're going to put on that day. Exactly. One more quick question. You mentioned that they weren't uh, cranberry production. You don't worry about susceptibility losses so much because the uh, perennial vines take up. They, it sounds like they luxury consume nutrients uh, <laughs> yes. when it's over applied. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask too, I, I've heard before that there's usually a lot of land that's supporting cranberry bogs so like a farm might have like 10 acres of beds maybe but they have like 200 more acres of kind of resources yeah. beyond that that's sort of supporting those yeah um and I'll, I'll i'll correct a little bit both um both there's not a whole lot of losses because the plants luxury consume and also the nature of acidic soils um, if you have extra nitrogen, uh, hey, it's instantly ammonium, and that's not going anywhere. So there's the uh, the the upside down, uh, you know, funhouse mirror world of our really acidic systems that are kind of still doing what they did naturally prior to agriculture was swamps, wetlands are filters um, as as water kind of passes through. Um, they lock a lot of nutrients and turn a lot of nutrients into usually fairly useless plants. Um, brown bush does not have, uh, there's not a whole lot to brown bush other than using up nutrients that would otherwise be in lakes. Luckily, cranberries are uh, a, a lot cooler than brown bush. So one thing that is different from people's expectations about cranberry farms, right now in Wisconsin, I believe that our average is um, nine acres of support land to every one acre of cropped cranberry beds. So a lot of times a row crop farm, if you if you say I'm I'm fifteen hundred acres, that means I have you know about fifteen hundred and and eighty acres or so. There's a little bit of support land for machinery, you know, machine shops and things. But we 
because we um, are so interconnected with water, um, want to have uh, basically water available that can that can make us able to grow cranberries um, on the order of nine to ten acres of support land for every one acre of cropped bed. And therefore, you've got um, extra woodlands, you've got sometimes extra reservoir area, you've got um, other other lands that that might have been cranberry that that's um, kind of bog like. Um, there's a lot of additional land available, and that also usually helps us out. Um, if we're returning water somewhere, we can usually let it settle out speedwise first and and drop any turbidity. Um, there's yeah, there's a lot of good things associated with having all those support acres. I think it's really interesting, you know, coming from a row cropping world where we, you know, one of our main issues with water quality is something like nitrate. Um, and it just sounds like, you know, in a system that uses so much water and has is so associated with water, as you mentioned, you know, in my mind, I would be like nitrate leaching has to be a huge issue, but it just doesn't seem like it is because of the acidic nature of the soils and the, you know, luxury consumption of the cranberries. So that's fascinating to me. It is actually the case. We still care about nitrate leaching. We care about it when it comes from upstream, right? Mm. And so there are growers who are in regions that have uh, high nitrates in the water that's available and they will do water tests on their way in and reduce granular nitrogen application in order to account for that nitrogen that's coming in. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, cool. Um, you Maybe you want to say we save money on it. You know, maybe you spend as much money at the at the water test uh, fees as you would have on nitrogen. But um, we are super concerned about water quality and that we think about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're, we're hyper focused on it. Um, because again, if we're getting more, if we're getting more than we need, like, oh no. Um, and so there are um, marshes in those areas that can be um, high nitrogen that, that will run kind of a mix of surface water and groundwater to have, to kind of modulate and, and not over fertilize. Um, there are growers um, who, who run tests on their own marshes and, you know, yep, we see higher nitrates coming in than going out. Um, so we're actually kind of serving as a sink for some of that. Um, and we feel very glad to be able to contribute to the watersheds overall. Right. And so that was, I guess, my kind of follow-up was like, can we think of sometimes cranberry marshes as a way of filtering out nitrates from groundwater or surface water? Basically, yes. Um, and that's, I kind of, it's this, it's the same as a natural wetland. It's still serving mm-hmm. that same function of um, locking up nitrogen into ammonium, um, letting the letting the weird acid loving plants that that eat ammonium instead of eating uh instead of eating nitrate uh flourish from those so it it's a it's a really cool system i'm very proud that wisconsin it it really kind of doubles down on the natural process right yeah and wisconsin is it it's the largest cranberry growing state by far right absolutely we this year it's 62 percent of the world's cranberries are grown in wisconsin Wow, very cool. And so, yeah. you know, you mentioned growers taking, you know, tests of groundwater or water that's coming into the swamp, check for nitrates to make sure they're not, you know, overfeeding their cranberries. And so that's a challenge, making sure that the cranberries are getting exactly what they need. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the other challenges that cranberry growers face? Um, we're talking about earlier, you have these research roundtables, which is awesome. 
And so growers give feedback directly to the researchers at the university that they can work on, but kind of like, what are the, some of those, can you take off some of those main challenges that they face? Yeah, absolutely. So we, and I'll just, this was just two days ago, so it's very fresh in my memory, but um, it's honestly kind of a capstone of the year for me, getting the growers in front of the researchers and giving growers a chance to brainstorm, um, talk about their challenges, find out what's, what's a research shaped challenge. Um, we this year broke up into um, five kind of subheadings, and I'm sure they'll be familiar to row crop farmers that are listening as well. We have an entomology, uh, an entomology breakout group and a genetics breakout group. Um, we have a plant pathology, um, one on uh, horticulture, plant physiology, and then one that's kind of general management, which is both uh, machinery, laser weeders, logistics, and farm management questions like labor and those kinds of things. So there's, um, pick one of those and I'll, I'll give you a list of examples of things that we talked about. You said laser weeders and that, you know, perked my interest. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the, the huge benefit of laser weeders from our perspective is going to be having finally a tool against some of these woody perennials that we can't attack without damaging cranberries. Um, and the challenge of adapting that into cranberry use is right now they're very heavy uh, and right now they're wheeled and we would need to come up with either a really impressive cantilever on a traveling boom or some kind of um, kind of tying roller system that would let them transit the beds without damaging vines. So work on uh, you know, work on laser weeders is uh, right now focusing on how do we not damage vines uh, in the application of it. Um, so that that's a, a fun one that everybody's eyes light up about. Very cool. Yeah, I was like, what? Is this some sort of newfangled, you know, futuristic technology? I mean, it totally is. Um, and that it, it is being used in several specialty crops. Um especially perennial ones and especially uh, especially ones that are in rows that can handle tracked vehicles. So we're, we're excited to be uh, soon on the list of, of rollouts, but that's still in the, you know, still in the research phase. Um, in terms of like entomology, um, we've had, um, we have a few kind of really pernicious pests that have really, so the, the redheaded flea beetle um, Cystina frontalis has a very long emergence pattern and we have products that can control it early in the summer um, but the pre-harvest intervals on those chemistries are fairly long so come come August we no longer have any control tools and we ha still have to watch the flea beetles continue to emerge and continue to eat both the foliage and the berries um, and that's heartbreaking and so a big research push is on um, if we can possibly target the larvae instead of targeting the adult beetles, um, they lay their eggs uh, 15 centimeters deep. And so it's hard to target larvae. And so we're looking at some nematode applications. So a lot of, um, a lot of discussion in our entomology group this time was, was nematode focused and finding ways to handle flea beetles that don't bump up against uh, pre-harvest intervals. Um, because those are, we're obviously as a direct food crop, um, there's pre-harvest intervals and there's also 
uh, maximum residue limits that the handlers impose. And especially if you have fruit for export, um, there can be something with a pre-harvest interval of 10 days, but the, the MRL from the handler, sorry, you have to be 45 days. Mm. Um, and we're, we're obviously very, very, very uh, careful about that because, you know, there would be, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're extremely, uh, extremely sensitive to our handlers' needs and, and consumers' needs. Yeah, it sounds like um, maybe the answer is uh, soil penetrating lasers. Uh, hey. To continue on the laser theme. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I would support that. That'd be fun. But then we'd find out like what what else would be would be zapping at the same time, right? So That's over true. in the you're right over uh, over in the the horticulture physiology group, um, the big questions there, especially since we've had a few new cultivars of cranberries released in the last fifteen years. Um, there's a lot of research on cold hardiness and um, breaking dormancy in our older varieties, but there's uh, not as crisp of research on the newer varieties. So getting the dormancy breaking habits of um, our new hybrids understood is a top horticulture need. But there's also um, what's going on in the rhizosphere. So we have a, a molecular biologist who works in, in cranberries at the University of Wisconsin and she and her lab have taken kind of a census of all of the uh, mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria and other um, other cool microbes living near and on the roots of cranberries. And she took this census from commercial cranberries and from organic cranberry, like organic production methods cranberries, and from wild cranberries growing in in swamps nearby, cranberry marshes. And kind of took a complete census and said, what's in here? And has found several like phosphorus solubilizing bacteria, um, has found other cool mycorrhizae that, that are able to hand, um, like we said, the, the phosphorus is super, super bound up in our really acidic soil. So how does that get handed over to the cranberry root so the cranberry root can uptake it? Um, yeah, lots of cool work uh, on those fronts being done. And now that I know that they're there, I don't want any of... Uh, any of Jasna's mycorrhizae to get zapped. Right. Um, yeah, maybe some lessons from for row croppers to be learning from in the future with those uh phosphorus solubizing. So I use that word wrong, but that's okay. Um bacteria. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, it's great to hear uh, you know, some of the solutions that you guys are coming up with to address these challenges and that research-based roundtables is really cool. Uh I might start kind of wrapping us up here a little bit. Uh, so Allison, this is sort of a variation of a question we kind of ask uh, during each of our episodes, which is basically if someone was interested in either learning more about the cranberry industry or where to get involved, where would they maybe go for that information? Yeah, um, I just double checked that searching cranberry back to basics um, does give what I hoped it gave, which is our, our kind of newly released um, Back to Basics course, which is a, a series of videos that handles, I think it's like 15 um, common and important cranberry topics. We kind of developed this with the idea of when cranberry growers hire new people who are, you know, good workers, but don't have cranberry background, um, gives them an understanding of um, agronomy, of entomology. Um, so go ahead and type in Cranberry Back to Basics course. You can scan each of those QR codes and watch a video. Um, the other places that I have a lot of information up are fruit.wisc.edu and then backslash cranberries. And then there's um, 
a, a good old list of um, all of the cranberry crop management journals that we put out. Um, another way is uh, reaching out directly to me um, at yeah, allison.johnjack at wisc.edu. Um, and also the Wisconsin Cranberry Growers Association, which is wiscran.org, is a really good resource. Um, so there, we're, we're happy to share. We're really proud to be part of Wisconsin agriculture. We're um, glad, to, glad to kind of get to, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people come from out of state to watch cranberry harvest at the cranberry festivals in Warrens and Eagle River and Stone Lake. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're happy to be transparent and, uh, and communicative. And uh, yeah, we're very glad if you have questions to reach out. Definitely. That's wonderful. Well, thanks, Allison, for uh, joining us today and sharing all of your cranberry wisdom with us. Thanks for the invitation. This has been super fun. I hope uh, I hope it's enjoyable, and I hope everyone has a a good dish of cranberry sauce, or or at least some uh, put some put some sweet and dried cranberries in your apple pie for for Thanksgiving this week. Definitely. Thanks for listening. This has been Field Notes from UW Madison Extension. My name is Will Fulwider, Regional Crops Educator for Dane and Dodge Counties, and I was joined by my co-host Michael Geisinger outreach specialist in Northwest Wisconsin for the Nutrient and Pest Management Program of UW-Madison. A big thank you to Joe Ryan for creating our theme music and to Abby Wilkie-Maki for our logo. If you have any questions about anything you've heard today or about your farming practices in general, reach out to the Extension Agriculture Educators serving your region.